everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is John Levinson, who teaches at Harvard University. Here to talk about his new book, The Love of God, Divine Gift, Human Gratitude, and Mutual Faithfulness in Judaism, published in 2016 by Princeton University Press. John, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you very much, Jason. It's a delight to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. So, John, what is love of God, and, and what made you want to write about it? Well, the love of God is a central command in Judaism. It's in the classical Talmudic system. It's a formal mitzvah, a formal commandment, a commandment on the people of Israel uh, to love God. So you might call that the objective genitive, uh, man's love for God, the people Israel's love for God. But there's a whole other meaning, uh, namely uh, the subjective genitive, God's love for the people Israel, God's love as opposed to the love of God. And my claim in the book is that these two things are very closely associated with each other. That to some degree, the uh, love of God that the people Israel, that the Jewish people are in the Torah and in rabbinic literature uh, and expected to give to God is uh, a reflection of and a response to the antecedent God, love that God has shown them. Uh, how I got interested in it is simply that, well, if you're a student of ancient Judaism and ancient Jewish theology, the religious thought of the Tanakh, of the Jewish Bible, and of Midrash, of classical Jewish biblical interpretation, and the whole classical Talmudic system, uh, it's hard to avoid this subject. Uh, even though I have to say an awful lot of Jewish study scholars have succeeded in avoiding the subject for various reasons. Mm-hmm. So there has been sort of a lack of discussion about this uh, to the to to the extent that we do think about love of God. Um, I think you know you point out we almost certainly misunderstand what love of God meant in the Bible. Uh, what 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 do we get wrong, and how should we understand things like treaties, covenants, relationships? I think what we tend to get wrong in modern times is uh, that we think of love as a sentiment. We think of it as a feeling. It's something that happens to you. Think of the expression "fall in love." I think there's something very profound in that notion of an involuntary act that we have in the English verb to fall in love. But at the same time, uh, in the ancient Near Eastern context in which the Hebrew Bible arose, the ancient Near Eastern context, which was already very ancient by the time the Jewish people emerged, the people of Israel emerged, the first documents of the Bible were being composed. Uh, love of God also had a, a technical meaning. The love, love had a technical meaning of the service that a lesser king in a treaty owed to his sovereign, to his suzerain, to his master in the treaty. If you put this in the language of medieval European feudalism, which is not the happiest language, you'd have to say that the vassal owes service, he owes fidelity, he owes fealty, and he owes service to his lord, his suzerain. So there's a legal dimension to it. And in a book like Deuteronomy, that legal dimension, that treaty dimension, that dimension of diplomatic language is very, very strong. So the love of God, especially in a book like Deuteronomy, which is the book in the Bible that stresses the love of God most, that's say man's love for God the most, uh, the, uh, you're dealing with, with a set of obligations. And so loving God, fearing God, serving God, clinging to God, using the verb davek, uh, that is actually, uh, those are all really in some degree the same thing in, uh, in Deuteronomy. That's what moderns miss. Uh, moderns miss it because of the notion, uh, their sentimentalist, emotionalist interpretation of love, and also because for moderns for probably 200 years or more in the West, there's been a 
a kind of feeling out there that really the ultimate love, the most profound love, the archetype of all love is erotic love, which is full of passion. And uh, I would argue that erotic love in the ancient world uh, also involved uh, obligation. It, all, it, was, it was structured. It also involved law. To set law and love in opposition to each other, as some streams of Christianity do, for example, is radically to misunderstand the, this ancient and Near Eastern context, and especially the context that survives in Judaism. Mm-hmm. So in the context of love of God, what, what is service, uh, and why is it so important? Uh, and you say that love of God in the Hebrew Bible uh, is a matter of action and affect. Uh, maybe you can tell us what you mean by that. Well, service involves very specific deeds. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern treaty context, the main thing the great king, the emperor, the suzerain, wants to secure from his vassal, from the lesser king, is exclusive fidelity. I mean, back in the old days, I guess here I give away my age, I used to tell my students, it would be as if you have these two great blocks of powers. You have NATO and you have the Warsaw Pact. And uh, if you're a member of NATO, you can also be a member of the Warsaw Pact and vice versa. The idea is to secure uh, a solidarity and, and uh, unity in an alliance. Uh, similarly here, uh, if you have a suzerain in the treaty, you have to serve him uh, exclusively. And that's really what I think the origin of covenantal monotheism in the Bible uh, there are different types of monotheism in the Bible, but the one that I think dominates, especially dominates in a book like Deuteronomy, especially dominates in the context of the love of God, is the uh, notion that uh, there is to be only one master. He alone can be served. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. The question is not ontological. It's not how many gods are there. It doesn't deal with the nature of divinity in this covenantal context. It has to do with something very different. It has to deal with the question of uh, of uh, uh, the, nat- uh, the nature of the relationship, an exclusive relationship. In that sense, an analogy with monogamy uh, would be in order, at least from the standpoint of the vassal. He has to be monogamous. He has only one uh, partner uh, in this relationship. So uh, in terms of affect and action, uh, I argue that that dichotomy very commonly made in, in modern times uh, uh, less so since the rise of behaviorism and various other uh, kindred uh, forms of uh, psychological thinking. Uh, but I would argue that uh, the dichotomy of affect and action is, is, is not helpful here. Uh, the love entails certain discrete acts. Uh, in the Bible, it tends to be thought of as commandments, obedience to the suzerain, obedience not as some sort of blind, stupid obedience, but obedience as an act of love and service uh, and fidelity uh, motivated by gratitude and motivated by motivated by an appreciation of the love that the suzerain has already shown to the vassal from whom he expects those acts of service. In rabbinic literature, this tends to be thought of as the mitzvot, as the uh, 613 uh, required acts required of Jews towards towards God. Uh, but this is a God who's also seen as actively loving them. And in that sense, uh, the affective dimension uh, can't be ignored on either side. I, I would say, in addition, that it always seems to me that it's a mistake to think of any sort of affect, any sort of emotion, any sort of affect as simply, uh, uh, you know, something that happens to you and there's nothing you can do to control it. Uh, you can, in fact... Uh, uh, learn to feel certain things, uh, 
various forms of therapy, various forms of psychotherapy, uh, behavior psychology, uh, all build on this notion. If you if you smile at someone you dislike long enough and, and try to say things that show a genuine interest and concern for the well-being of that person, your dislike of that person, your uh, tendency to stereotype that person in terms of certain uh, hatreds or, or situations you've had uh, will decrease. So acting a certain way uh, can uh, is inevitably connected to affect, and having a certain affect is inevitably connected to the action. The two really can't be radically uh, separated. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a bit about um, the direction from the people of Israel to God. What about the other direction? What does it mean when we say that God loves? Uh, you know, what do we mean? And sort of in response, what, it, what is gratitude? Well, in part, God, God's love uh, reflects something uh, also from the treaty formulary. That is to say, the vassal also uh, loves his suzerain. And there's some evidence for that in ancient Near East. It's not just that the, excuse me, the, the suzerain also loves his vassal. It's not just that the lesser party, the weaker king, uh, feels uh, gratitude and therefore loves his master in the covenant relationship, but the master also uh, loves and protects uh, his vassal. So uh, there, uh, the uh, why God falls in love with Israel why God loves Israel, why God, in the language of Deuteronomy, fell in love with our ancestors, the Avot, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, why he did that is always a little unclear. Uh, rabbinic literature tries to fill it in by claiming that, to some degree, following Second Temple Judaism, that uh, Abraham, for example, saw through idolatry, and God, in a sense, rewarded him. Abraham sought God, and then God revealed himself to Abraham, this is something I discussed in my earlier book, Inheriting Abraham. Uh, but in, you don't see that in, in, in the Bible. In the Bible, there's a more passionate love affair of God and Israel. And God falls in love with Israel. The verb in one place in Deuteronomy 7 is chashak, which I argue means to take a passion to, to feel an almost irrational, erotic passion. But the irrational, erotic passion starts an ongoing relationship that becomes much more than just passion, much more than just sentiment. Uh, it's it's uh, it has a structure. It has a legal uh, social dimension to it. You say that when you uh, ask your students what love is, they almost entirely focus on romantic love. Right. Uh, I'm curious, what do they? How do they respond to this idea uh, of a passionate or a passion-based theology? Uh, that depends very much on the students. I think most of them uh, find it. Uh, uh, interesting and enlightening. I think it, in some cases it corresponds with something that they felt themselves but, but thought of as uh, sub-intellectual or, uh, or not really the sort of thing that could be mentioned in uh, intellectually and culturally advanced circles. Uh, so they, they, they tend, uh, in that sense, to be uh, uh, themselves grateful that such an idea Came, came to mind. Others, I'm sure, dismissed it as a kind of a primitive superstition. They, uh, you know, there's a strong tendency in modern times, especially, though it's not unique to modernity, for people to prefer a, uh, a non-personal, an impersonal model of divinity. So God becomes a moral ideal. God becomes the ground of being. God becomes something other than a personal being who can enter into a personal relationship as any relationship of love is, uh, is nothing if not personal. Uh, so there are, of course, those who would dismiss such an idea. But I try to convince them that, in fact, even in their own lives, 
They have all kinds of forms of love that are not erotic and sexual. Think of the love of parent and child, of siblings. Uh, those are not, on hopes, uh, erotic or, and sexual. Uh, but at the same time, they are intense forms of love. And sometimes the form that love takes involves things like uh, you know, driving your kid to the orthodontist uh, or uh, paying a tuition bill or disciplining the child who's gone wrong. Uh, all those are also forms of love. They don't look very romantic. They don't look very erotic. But they do express a deeper understanding of this relationship that we call love. And all, ask- all of them have I say all of them have analogies in the God-Israel relationship as it appears in classical Jewish literature. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you briefly about uh, how you approach the Bible, uh, and you are widely known as a scholar of the Bible. Um, we had Gary Anderson on a few weeks ago uh, yeah. and David Lambert, oh, yeah. and both of them both of them talked about uh, focusing on readers and interpreters of the Bible rather than just authors. Uh, I imagine you're quite uh, sympathetic to that view of doing biblical scholarship. Is that right? You mean the history of the interpretation of how people have read and used the Bible over the centuries? Is that, is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah, no, I'm, exactly. Very, I'm very sympathetic to that. I, I have never believed that the meaning of a text is exclusively limited to what its original author meant, and therefore... The way in which the Bible, for example, is read in Second Temple Judaism, Hellenistic Judaism, and in, in uh, uh, rabbinic Judaism, or for that matter, in Christianity, and more distantly in Islam, those things matter. And even in secular culture, all of those things certainly matter to the meaning of the text. The other extreme I would also worry about, though, I worry about the extreme that pays no attention at all to the cultural world in which the Bible appeared, and imagines that uh, it simply means uh, what it meant in late antiquity or in the Middle Ages or in modernity. I think there has to be an interplay between those different senses of Scripture. Uh, but uh, in that sense, I think the audience's uh, the question of the audience does matter. And in my own view, even for historians, and Jewish studies is the most historicistic of fields, the one that puts the most emphasis on history, that's most comfortable talking in the past tense. But even for historians, it always seems to me that what history really is, is not the past. What history is, is the interaction between a scholar living now in the present and the materials from the past. That's what makes history. That's what history is. The mute artifacts or ancient texts of the past mean nothing except as they are interpreted by someone who's alive today. And therefore, to set up a strong dichotomy between contemporary interpretation and ancient meaning strikes me as simple-minded. Mm-hmm. An awful lot, for an awful lot of Jewish studies, that stark dichotomy is very much alive. I often say that in Jewish studies, you have a very large number of people who uh, are like a student who studied a foreign language, but can only uh, have only mastered, has only mastered the past tense. And you ask them what it means, they can't answer. They can only tell you what it meant. But I would say what it means and what it meant are uh, they mutually imply each other. So we've talked a bit about the Bible. I want to ask you about uh, the material in chapter two. Uh, What what does the Talmud have to say about love of God? And earlier we spoke of service. This chapter asks us to think about sacrifice. Uh, What does that mean? I think a lot of this ancient uh, treaty type understanding of of, uh, love, the love of God in the sense of Israel's love for God continues in Talmudic literature and rabbinic literature. Um, as does in, in the notion of God's love for Israel, which, if anything, becomes even stronger, I think, in rabbinic uh, literature. Uh, but the, uh, they also uh, are very interested in making sure that the love is not premised on self-interest. The genuine love involves some self-sacrificial movement, <clears throat> excuse me, 
If love is only a question of self-interest, then it becomes a quid pro quo, tit for tat. It just becomes a, uh, a transaction. Uh, and a lot of people think, in fact, that's what the, what religion is, is all about, people trying to get what's good for themselves. Uh, the rabbis are eager to say, no, the love of God has to be a love even unto death if that situation presents itself. If the situation of martyrdom presents itself, uh, the rabbis don't generally advocate seeking it out, obviously. But if it presents itself, the person willing to lay down his or her life uh, out of the love of God to fulfill that commandment, as the traditions say uh, Rabbi Kiva did, for example, uh, that represents a very high degree of love of God. Uh, as long as people are seeking to serve out of self-interest, seeking a reward, dreading a punishment, and they're not really fulfilling completely or ideally the, uh, the commandment uh, to love God. So in rabbinic literature, probably because of the experience of Jewish martyrdom that had been going on for a couple hundred years by that point and, and uh, picked up in the, in the time of the Bar Kokhba uh, war, uh, 132 to 135 of the Common Era, uh, you see a lot of emphasis on the sacrifice, on martyrdom, on on the uh, the self-giving aspect of love. But I would argue that even in the Bible, there's a self-giving dimension to the love of God. That uh, on the one hand, uh, reward and punishment are affirmed. God is said to be just. He's said to be a just judge. And what what just judge? What judge uh, ignores the merits of the people who stand before him? On the other hand, those rewards and punishments are not the motivation for the love of God. In rabbinic literature, those, those terms love of God and fear of God tend to be differentiated as they're not in the Bible. And love of God tends to be seen as selfless service, and fear of God tends to be seen as the fear of punishment. Uh, and uh, the rabbis affirm the necessity of both. Uh, but they are pained to say love is superior as a motivation for service, superior to fear. Mm. I want to ask you about chapter three, which is entitled The Once and Future Romance. Uh, th- this is a chapter in which it's particularly hard, I think, not to bring our 21st century Western ideas about uh, love and eros in. So I do want to be careful about my word choice, yes. and uh, and I'll ask um how how should we think about God and Israel as as lovers? This idea is most prominent in certain prophets, Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the notion being that God at some point fell in love with Israel and Israel fell in love with God and was a faithful bride who then went astray. And all those prophets, uh, he, uh, Israel went astray. They forgot the exclusivity of their relationship. They undercut covenantal monotheism in that sense. And they worshipped and served other gods. And they even in Hosea, they even are said to imagine that this other god, Baal, Baal, this, the uh, rival to Hashem, to the God of Israel, that he gave them all those wonderful agricultural products. In other words, they're grateful. They're grateful to the wrong god. So um, it's seen as, 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 a, as a romance uh, but one that went uh, astray. And uh, I think in general, in, in both in Deuteronomy and in those prophets, the love of God, the texts that talk about the love of God are assuming a need to persuade the hearers to enter into that relationship, or to renew the, that relationship, to reclaim that covenantal relationship, because they have gone very far astray. Mamrim Hayyitem, it says in Deuteronomy, they quote Moses, is supposedly saying, 
you've been rebellious against me all this time. And the prophets make this very clear, but they also make it clear that uh, that relationship is not over with. God may have divorced Israel, but will remarry them. God may have renounced them and punished them, but will redeem them and reward them, and, and, and the, the romance will will reappear. This, this has the most analogies, or the strongest analogy with modern sentimental understandings of, of uh, love. On the other hand, it's not sentimental alone. Uh, it's it's uh, the relationship of a bride and groom, uh, but uh, again, it presupposes acts of service, uh, acts of, of fidelity, and a, and uh, a certain exclusivity and uh, abstinence from uh, sexual promiscuity uh, that uh, that do themselves constitute uh, uh, stipulations of covenant, as it were. And when the rabbis, when the rabbis. Uh, considered this, they primarily considered in terms of the Song of Songs. They interpret the Song of Songs as a love song of God and Israel and Israel to God. Usually the male speaker is thought of as, as God and the female speaker is thought of as the people of Israel, as the Jewish people. In a very idealized state, uh, that becomes the strongest uh, uh, example of the love of God. That The parade example of love of God in rabbinic literature would be the interpretation of Shira Shirim, of the Song of Songs, and at the same time, uh, similar things are going on in Christian circles, the uh, the love of Christ and the church. I want to ask you about the the, the Middle Ages. Uh, maybe you can um, tell us specifically about Duties of the Heart. Yeah, this was a, a book, uh, usually known in Hebrew as Chovot HaLevavot, that was actually originally written in Arabic uh, by Bachi ibn Pakuda uh, in, in medieval Spain. Uh, Muslim Spain, and uh, this is a very profound spiritual classic of, of Judaism. Uh, I, for years, have, in a kind of amateurish or personal way, uh, tried to study it and learn it and absorb this book. But his last section, his last gate or last chapter, whatever you want to call it, is is about the love of God, which to him is the consummation of the whole spiritual life, uh, and uh, he. Uh, he talks in great detail about what the person who loves God does. What are the what are the characteristics of a lover of God? What does, how does, what's different about the speech of a lover of God? How does the lover of God comport himself? Um, and when you read a book like that, you, it's a spiritual manual. It's also a philosophical work. Um, but when you read a book like that, you realize that there's a uh, that for him. Uh, the love of God, again, as in rabbinic literature, has to be the primary motivation, the primary passion of one's life. So for Bachir, the lover of God is not someone who complains, oh, I got all these religious obligations, all these things I do, all these ethical restrictions, all these ritual restrictions, what do I need with them? But rather, as a lover, he wants to do more for the one he loves. He wants to do more for the beloved. And so uh, he, he wakes up at night to engage in prayer and penitential exercises and uh, he uh, the, so, so you can see that there's a kind of uh, manual devotion and description of the of the lover of God it's fair to say though that in that medieval uh, that medieval Muslim world which Pakya uh, uh, in Pakuda lived uh, the the focus is more on he, the human love for God the objective genitive the Jewish people's love for God only there, it's not just collective, the Jewish people, it's also an individual, the individual Jew, what the individual Jew can do to deepen 
and and uh, uh, strengthen uh, his own love for God. Much more focused on that than on the subject of love of God, God's love for uh, the Jewish people. Uh, but uh, uh, really, it's a very, very profound uh, book. I don't know whether I, in my chapter four in my book called The Love of God, whether I, in fact, uh, did justice to Bach's uh, understanding of the love of God. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, in chapter five of the book, you look at uh, modern thinkers, primarily uh, Buber and Rosenzweig, um, and you and you have a subheading that's called Knowing Through Doing, uh, and I like that. What what are some of the implications um, for for this theology for living such a life? Well, of course, Buber and Rosenzweig uh, were two great Jewish theologians in, in Germany uh, in the twentieth century. Um, it's still hard for me to deal with the fact that the 20th century is in the past. I think of myself as living the 20th century, which I haven't done for a number of years now. Uh, I guess if I had more talent in math, I could figure out how many years. But uh, Buber and Rosenzweig uh, differed on an important fact. They both wanted to reclaim the personality of God, the personhood of God, over against all the modernistic, modern scientific critiques of the personhood of God. Uh, it's not just belief in the God as some sort of abstract supreme being, but it's a, a belief in a living God with whom one can enter into a personal relationship. For Buber, the Torah, in the sense of law and mitzvot, uh, could not really be part of that. To him, law is something external. Uh, if I'm going to do a mitzvah, if I'm going to do a commanded deed, I have to feel personally commanded. Rosenzweig was more, um, what should I say, more encompassing or embracing of the classical view that the bias should always be towards fulfilling the commandment. That, yes, you want law to become commandment, gazette in German to become gebot, law to become commandment. But the Jew should, should try his best to make law into commandment for himself. And sometimes one does something that one doesn't totally understand. Sometimes by the doing, by the doing of the law, it comes to be internalized into a commandment. I would say by putting oneself in a social community where certain things are practiced, the practices become second nature, and even the beliefs and affects that go along with those practices come to be one's own. I think that's a very profound uh, point that that Rosenzweig uh, stresses. Uh, again, probably no no theologian I know, uh, I don't claim to know them all, but no theologian in the 20th century was more profoundly absorbed with the question of the love of God, what it means personally, existentially, theologically, philosophically, than Franz Rosenzweig. Mm-hmm. Well, John, we've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and uh, what are you working on next? Well, right now I'm casting around for a new project. I'm thinking about doing a book on the figure of Moses and the uh, revisioning of Moses at various times in history from uh, Second Temple Judaism through uh, early Christianity, through uh, medieval and modern thought, various modern debunkings of the figure of Moses, uh, the efforts to... uh, come up with uh, what you might call a non-Jewish Moses that a number of people have made over the years. Uh, that's sort of thing I'm thinking about, but I haven't really committed myself to it yet. Uh, we'll see how far that goes. He's on the hunt for more projects. Yeah. That's great. John, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. The book is The Love of God, Divine Gift, Human Gratitude, and Mutual Faithfulness in Judaism. 
published in 2016 by Princeton University Press. The author is John Levinson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.